Well, I'm delighted again to be back here together and to be uh, standing here in this place for us this morning as I just returned from a couple back-to-back counseling conferences last week, uh, which were both encouraging and really productive. And coming out of those conferences, I was reminded of something that I think really suits what we're going to see from God's Word this morning, which is the reminder that we all need a well-rounded theology. We all need, every Christian needs a well-rounded theology. Now, none of us have a perfectly well-rounded theology. I don't have a perfectly well-rounded theology. My theology is lumpy. It's bumpy. If you try to roll it, it bounces along back and forth. You might think of sometimes you've had in your, the tire of your car a knot that develops, and all of a sudden it kind of, it kind of struggles along down the road, or, or you might think of, uh, think of, of a football that's not well-rounded. That's what actually makes it so difficult. Sometimes we go out and play, you know, throw the football with the kids, and a football is something that has to be thrown just right to really be useful. And as long as you throw it just right, it can be caught. But if you throw a duck and it's wobbling through the air, it's difficult to catch. It also doesn't roll very well. If it hits the ground, you have no idea where it is going. That's some, in some ways the way that I see my own theology. It is not perfectly round. It's not well-rounded, but we need a theology well-rounded. We need one that's like a tennis ball or a baseball or a basketball that can roll smoothly in any direction. It can sort of turn on a dime. It's easy to pitch and use. And so we hope that this morning we may gain a little more ground in our well-rounded theology by considering uh, how we can develop that with this difficult doctrine of the wrath of God. This certainly is a difficult doctrine. This is one of those mornings, like most Sunday mornings, also when I'm really thankful for our worship team because of the selection of songs. It really is important that we are singing songs that are big and bright with gospel hope, especially when we come to texts like Revelation 16, 1 through 12. I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's word there now, Revelation 16, verses 1 through 12. We need those big, bright messages of grace and mercy in the gospel because of what Jesus Christ has done for us if we are going to come to difficult doctrines and texts like this. Because if we don't have that on the front end, if we don't have that encouraging our hearts, we can become at least two of many things. We can become despairing. We can see God's wrath. We can see his seriousness about sin. And as we look in the mirror of God's law, we see our sin, we can become despairing and despondent. Or we may also become bitter at the world. We look at all of the problems in the world. We see all of the evidences of sin. We see uh, people out in the world, and we are in part those people who are difficult to live with, difficult to deal with. We can see the effects of sin in their hearts and lives and attitudes, just like we can in ours. But if we don't have that overwhelming, big, bright message of, of gospel grace ever washing over us, we can become bitter at the world. We can become angry at the world. And then when that happens, our message becomes wobbly. It becomes oblong. It becomes law-heavy. And all we do is preach law after law after law to the people around us rather than 
preaching law and big gospel. This morning we have an opportunity to round out our theology by considering this difficult doctrine of the wrath of God. We're going to be looking at these verses 1 through 12, but actually this morning I'm going to show you two key points that can help us develop this difficult doctrine in our own hearts. Just two, if you're taking notes, you can prepare for those. But the text will be just a little bit out of order because I want to begin in the, in the middle of our text and then work around. So we'll be looking first here at verses 5 through 7 as we consider this first important truth about the wrath of God. And it is this, that wrath comes from a righteous God. Now that may seem obvious to you, but it is something that we really need to grasp if we're going to understand what a text like this is all about. What a difficult doctrine, like the wrath of God, is all about. How does that work? How are we to understand this? Because it can be quite confusing. In fact, when it comes to the doctrine of God's wrath, I think that it's most shocking to us. This doctrine is shocking. You think it's shocking to us. Imagine how shocking it is when people who don't have the context of Scripture or the gospel or a knowledge of this righteous God, how it lands for them. But I think one of the reasons why for us that this doctrine is often shocking and surprising to us is because it seems contrary to what we have come to know most about God. As covenant people, as Christians, as those on whom he has chosen by sovereign grace to bestow his love, to set his love on us, to even foreknow us from eternity past, to know the the washing waves of grace that are continually ministered to us as we read his word, as we we interact with Jesus by praying and and with each other, by, by encouraging one another in the gospel, trying to make the gospel paramount, being reminded of all that the gospel tells us as an announcement of good news with no mixture of bad news whatsoever, knowing that all of God's wrath has been taken from us and put on Christ, it's easy for the doctrine of God's wrath to become hidden behind the the good and beautiful veil of grace. That's, in a way, why our theology can become a little, um, South Carolina, womper-jogged, a little bit imbalanced, a little bumpy. It doesn't roll quite as smoothly as it needs to. He has shown us magnificent grace. And as we think, as we should, all about his magnificent grace, then it can be confusing when we come to texts like this, shocking to see something else about God that we haven't thought about very much. That there is within his nature not only a commitment to bestow extravagant grace, but also as the righteous God of the universe to bestow extravagant wrath. And we want to see that we want to see that this morning. It's a little bit like you've probably seen on National Geographic or the Discovery Channel some of the conservationists that work in particular with dangerous animals like big cats, lions and tigers. I'm not going to say the other, the other part. Lions and tigers and bears, but they have this strange personality and approach where they're not exactly content to leave the cats in the cage, but they want to live with them. 
And so they raise them from a very young age, and they become sort of part of the pride of the lions. One of these people is, is, a, is a man whose name was West Mathewson. And this is a story from just a few years ago. It's one of those pictures, when you watch that, it is so captivating to see someone with the big cats holding them and wrestling with them and petting them and feeding them and putting their arms inside their their jaws and their teeth. And the reason that that's so surprising is because you know that there's another side to that animal and you're not sure where it's gone until, like it was with Mr. Mathewson, just a few years ago at 69, walking one of the, the white lion lionesses that he had raised from birth on a normal daily walk together, one just all of a sudden decided to turn and attack him and kill him. It's that kind of shock because we've become so accustomed to God's grace that we've almost forgotten that this is a righteous God who is righteous not only in grace, but also in wrath. Listen to how clearly the Bible puts it in John's vision when we look at verse 5 as it talks about this righteous God and we're trying to get this context of who is this God that we serve so that we can understand some pretty difficult verses of Scripture that are coming next about about the future judgment of God, the ultimate judgment in the world, which we have been approaching more and more as we have worked our way through the book of Revelation. Notice what it says. John says, I heard the angel of the waters saying, righteous are you, the one who is and who was, a holy one, because you judged these things. For they, the recipients of wrath, poured out the blood of the saints and the prophets of this righteous God's beloved people and servants, and you have given them blood to drink. You're hearing those words of the wrath being poured out upon the world. And then he says, they deserve it. But then he goes back and he talks again about God. He said, I heard the altar saying, yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. Now let's take note quickly and summarily of what's been said here about this God so that we can understand the context of who is the righteous God that brings wrath on the world. Well, you notice that he is the righteous one. He is righteous like no other. You also read there that he is the eternal one who was and is. He is then also the holy one. He is the almighty one. We're fashioning an incredible picture of a God who is perfect in all of his excellencies and righteousness. And all of this is being delivered, this truth, so that we will see when we come to the difficult doctrine of God's wrath that his judgments, like him, are all of these things. See, this is what makes it difficult for us, and we'll see it a little bit more as we move forward this morning. It makes it difficult when we come to difficult doctrines because we have a hard time connecting what we're seeing to the God that we have come to know when our theology is not well-rounded. And we need this reminder that of all that he does, of all of his judgments, whether to bestow extravagant grace or whether to bestow extravagant wrath, 
that it is altogether righteous, just like he is. In fact, all of his judgments flowing out of him are all of those things that have described him. His judgments are righteous judgments. His judgments are eternal judgments, which have been and are and will be. His judgments are holy. His judgments are almighty. They're unthwartable. And this is the righteous God who brings wrath on the world. Now, there is another reason that I think this doctrine is difficult for us. I think it's difficult for most of us, and in fact, most people, that the, dif- the difficult doctrine of God's wrath is hard to accept or confusing because we think of God as having just two ways. It's a path of grace or a path of wrath that he walks, sort of like a, like a fork in the road. We think that he must take one or the other. And therefore, it's difficult for us to bring those two things together. The world would ask, reading a text like this, rightly so, how can the God of the Bible be so extravagant in grace and yet so extravagant in wrath? It's a fork in the road. How can he be both? Shouldn't he take one or the other? This is maybe what, what births in our hearts, that kind of idea that, well, the Old Testament is where you see God taking the wrath road and the New Testament is where God takes the grace road because we don't know how to put them together. And the reason that we don't know how to put them together is because we've missed something key about God. And it is that there is with God a middle road. That he is not only committed to grace as grace or wrath as wrath, but there's a middle path between the two that is his ultimate, if we can say that about God, his ultimate objective. And that middle path is glory. The bestowing of extravagant grace or the bestowing of extravagant wrath is, are two expressions of his ultimate commitment to his own extravagant glory. You see, his ultimate purpose in the world, as we know, is to put on display for the world his own glory. And he does that in those two ways and many others. He does that by bestowing grace and he does that by bestowing wrath, but he does both simultaneously so that he might bestow on the world a revelation of his glory. That's his ultimate commitment. We, we know this because we read throughout scripture the way that he talks, the Bible talks about his glory. Here's just two verses that remind us of this. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord... That name there with the capitals is Yahweh, his covenant name. I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to idols. So you're seeing there that he is really serious about his glory. I will not give my glory to another. No one in my world is allowed to rival me. For one no one can, and for two, even if you try, he will not stand for it because he will not share his glory or give his glory to another. Or Romans 6.23, for all have sinned and fall short, 
you know this, we've memorized this, falls short of the glory of God. There's that, that ultimate purpose and focus of glory. When you think of what is wrong with the world, yes, absolutely. We are all sinners. The world is under the curse of sin. The world is under the curse of sin. But why is that such a problem? It's such a problem because it is to fall short of his main objective, which is glory, the middle path. Therefore, we want to see in these verses that are coming up next the purpose of his judgment. Why is he bringing wrath on the world? Well, at least one way that we reason that we can see that he would bring judgment on the world. As he has in other times in history, in smaller ways, remember we've, we've been talking about how in the book of Revelation we're looking forward to an intensified version of things we have seen down through the redemptive history of God's people. And so as we see him working judgments in the world previously, at least one of the reasons is to pressure repentance and to press for glory. That's what we can see that judgments, punishments, discipline are made to do. They are made to apply pressure to turn the hearts of men and women back to himself, a work that only he can do. But you notice, as we move forward in these texts, that even when these came, they would not repent or give glory even when all of this intensified judgment and wrath came upon the world, they would not still repent. As we see those verses in just a moment, it will become so clear. It will become so enlightening to us about exactly what is needed to happen in the human heart and, and why is it that sin is such a problem for every person. And in fact, we'll see what we know from the rest of Scripture, that repentance... Repentance that is pressed in on by judgment is ultimately a gift. There is no law, there is no judgment, there is no wrath that can on its own produce repentance. It's not as though every person has repentance in their hearts and we just need to tap into it or fire it up or whip it into a frenzy and it will fly out and suddenly we'll see repentance but rather repentance is not there. And so these judgments are showing what's in the heart because even when incredible suffering and wrath comes on the world, the fallen human heart says no. And it is a reminder of why we sing the songs that we sing because only grace can make repentance. Only grace and mercy only the covenant love of God bestowed and declared in beautiful and bright pictures on the pages of Scripture and in the world through Christ, one to another sharing the gospel, only God's work of grace through that message can bring about repentance. And it makes us entirely dependent upon him. This is what the Apostle Paul told his spiritual son Timothy as he was preparing him for future ministry. Listen to what he says about the Lord's bondservant, which I think is absolutely about pastors, but there is a side of this that every Christian should hear and heed. He says, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, 
but be kind to all, skillful in teaching, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You're seeing this picture of what's really wrong with the human heart. And when put into the context of coming wrath and judgments in the world, it just further shows us the importance of our role that God has given us as ambassadors for Christ. And therefore, as we see this text and we see the importance of coming judgment and God's seriousness for sin and the need for repentance by grace and the fact that, that even judgments in wrath can't produce repentance, we are reminded that our Christian message must contain still the warning that wrath will come and it will come to defend God's stolen glory. So we want to be working and we want to be praying for repentance. And we best do that just as Paul told Timothy by being people of the gospel, people who make the gospel big and bright and yet have a well-rounded theology and are able to communicate the whole counsel of God, which is to know that yes, God is a God of grace, but he is a God of wrath because he is a God of glory. Wrath comes from a righteous God. If you want to understand this difficult doctrine, you have to start there. You have to embrace and know that God is righteous. And once you have that in place and in growing fashion, because no one really gets that, we'll never get that in the sense that we corner it or it becomes just ours. We mastered this doctrine of God's righteousness. That won't happen. But the more that we understand that, the more that the truth of difficult doctrines like God's wrath will settle in and we'll learn to appreciate them and glory in them and anticipate them and preach the gospel because of them. Wrath comes from a righteous God. But second, as we look more clearly at the coming wrath, I want you to see this, that wrath does come in a particular way. We need to give some color and context to what exactly does that mean? Wrath will come. What is that wrath like? Well, wrath comes, as we'll see next and last, with scorching judgment on the rejectors of the world. I'm going to say that again. Wrath is coming on the world with scorching judgment on those who reject Jesus Christ. And we do not say that as Christians with any kind of delight. We do not delight in the death of the wicked, neither does our king. And we don't say that with any kind of arrogance, like we, we figured out how to get out of wrath, and so we're above everybody else. We say that as fellow sinners, fellow sufferers, in desperate need of grace all day long, that we are appealing to the world to hear the wrath that is coming upon the rejectors of Christ all over the world, because we have been them. And we have been saved by grace alone. 
But nevertheless, this is part of the Christian message. And therefore, we want to be clear about this. We want the gospel to be big and bright, but we want the backdrop of that bright gospel to be the reality that a righteous God is righteously serious about his glory, and that will produce wrath in the world on those who reject him. There is another reason that we should build a robust theology of wrath. And that's because it gives us a partial sense, growing sense, of God's love for his glory and his grace, which we have been already considering this morning. John's vision, as we're going to see in the next few verses, which is 1 through 4 and then 8 through 12, shows us in incredible, humbling, frightful detail, the scorching nature of wrath. Even when you notice the fourth vial or bowl that's mentioned in the text uses that very word, scorching. But every bowl reveals a kind of picture of his comprehensive wrath displaying his seriousness about glory and grace. Now that may be a funny thing to hear. His seriousness about glory and grace is, is why the pictures of wrath exist to show that, but I want you to see that in a moment. But first, I think it's helpful for us to look at each of the bowls just briefly, or vials as it may be said. It's hard to imagine for us in our context a bowl, a bowl of wrath. You, you might think another word like vial that is poured out is a little easier to imagine, but nevertheless they are the same thing. A kind of, a kind of potion of judgment is being poured out, these symbols of his wrath being poured out on the world. Let's look first at verse 1. We're back to the beginning of that text. It says, then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels who had the, the plagues and now have been given vials of judgment, go out and pour on the earth the seven vials of the wrath of God. And then they start doing this and we see them. So the first three vials are poured out. We're going to see six of them this morning. The first three are poured out. And then we get to what we've just considered, verses 5 through 7. This really beautiful picture of God's righteousness in the midst of this incredibly dark picture of wrath in the world. And then the last three vials. But first, the first angel. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and a harmful and painful sore afflicted the people who had the mark of the beast and who worshipped his image. Now, all of these are going to sort of remind you back to some other things in Scripture, like in the Exodus, the plagues in particular, like this one, the sixth plague of Exodus, boils breaking out. It's a similar kind of picture, but remember, in this future moment, it is an exponentially intensified version of this. It's judgment that's coming not on a portion of the world or a people of the world, but it's coming on the whole world. And that also helps us to understand just how serious is this issue of glory and grace for the God who is the God of glory and grace. Notice the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became blood like that of a dead man and every living thing in the sea died. Egyptian plague number one intensified. 70% of the earth's surface are the seas. 
So you're getting an enormous picture of comprehensive judgment when all of the creatures in the sea have died. Then the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water, the fresh water, and they became blood. What God did to the seas happens to the fresh water. Again, think about what, what, what this means worldwide. You're talking about, about water becoming so scarce to find drinkable, usable water because it has all been cursed by this judgment. Then we move on down to verse 8. The fourth angel poured out his bowl upon the sun. Listen to this. It was given power to scorch people with fire. Talking about a vial of judgment by an angel, not poured upon the earth, but, but carried up to the sun and poured on the sun, which intensifies the sun. Something like you've seen a blacksmith do, blowing wind onto the fire to heat up that metal red hot. It's a little bit like that in this picture, in this symbol, that the sun becomes so hot that it scorches the world. But listen to this one. It goes on a little further and brings up a truth that we saw just a moment ago. The people were scorched with fierce heat. Here's that pressure. Here's that heat. The heat that we pray and hope and work and preach will, when it comes, that it would bring about repentance, that it would be a channel or a vehicle to carry God's, God's gracious message of relief and, and, and salvation in Christ to them and birth repentance and joy and change and love and worship for God. But what happens? The people were scorched with fierce heat and they blasphemed the name of God who has the power over these plagues. And they did not repent so as to give him glory. Now you think about this, again, highlighting that truth that only grace can produce faith. Only grace can produce repentance. There's nothing that I can say or do to produce repentance or salvation in the heart of any person. Not even an intensified exponentially heat of the sun can change people's hearts. When you press us, what's in our hearts comes out. And when you press the world apart from the grace of Christ, what comes out? More blasphemies. And without Christ, that's exactly what would come out of me. Exactly what would come out of you. It's another picture of the incredible problem of sin and our desperate need for Jesus Christ to enter into us by his miraculous power and to awaken our dead hearts and give us these good gifts of repentance and faith. Verse 10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became darkened. Now, we don't know what this means. It's not clear. What does that mean? We see the unholy trinity of the beasts and the devil and the kingdom that's set up in the world, and here there's judgment poured out upon the throne and the kingdom, and it's darkened, but we don't know what that means. Does that mean that, it, that it's economically darkened? Is it physically darkened? Is it spiritually darkened? We don't know, but we know why it's darkened. We know what the purpose of the wrath is, and that is ultimate judgment. Because notice what happens when this is poured out. They gnawed their tongues. Go ahead. Because of pain. Can you imagine that? Very few of us. 
thank God, very few of us will ever be in a place of life where we're in such pain that we gnaw our tongues. Some have. Some have been in excruciating pain. But this is, again, exponentially intensified. And darkness comes upon this ultimate enemy, the devil and his kingdom. But notice what it says in verse 11. Even then, gnawing their tongues, you would think, you would think that that will be enough to turn someone to Christ. Gnawing your tongue, serious pain. That'll be enough to get somebody to tap out and come to Christ, but no. Sin is far too strong. They blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pain and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl or vial on the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up so that the way would be prepared for the kings of the east. And we'll have to wait for a future sermon to see what's going on there, but it's as though the great Euphrates is dried up, making a way for an invading army. Perhaps that's the army of the devil's kingdom coming forward, thinking that they're going to do battle against the righteous God of the universe, and nevertheless, they're just being brought down to their destruction. A path is being opened for them to come into the judgment of God. But now, more about the point for our lives here. You've noticed so far that I have said that God's that wrath shows God's love for his glory and grace. I want to talk about that just for a moment to help us get a clearer picture of what God's wrath is all about. You know, we may be tempted to think, wow, that's a little extreme. Why does God need to be so hard on the world? But I want to bring some clarity as to why might God be so hard on the world in his ultimate judgment of wrath? There's two big reasons. We've mentioned them before, and I want to make them very clear this morning. Number one, why is God's judgment and wrath extreme? It is because his glory is extreme. The ultimate crime in the universe is to steal God's glory because it is ultimate to him. It's the middle road that brings all of his attributes together an ultimate celebration in the Trinity of, of the glory of God. And therefore, the ultimate crime is to steal or deny God's glory. And because that's the ultimate crime, what do you expect will be met with the ultimate crime. It would be the ultimate, the ultimate penalty. Now, we even know this kind of logic and thinking in our own legal system because our approach to the legal system is just by our general revelation as well as God's law written on all of our hearts, the same kind of logic of God's. The greater the crime, the greater the penalty. In 1981 in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, Dudley Wayne Kaiser received the longest single sentence of 10,000 years for murdering his wife. And then he received two more life sentences for murdering his mother-in-law and a college student. There's the picture. That's the reality. It's here in our world. We understand it. That's the logic. But you think, why would we do that? He's not going to live 10,000 years. 
because the crime must be dignified. It must be recognized, its seriousness. And that murder, the serious crime, deserves 10,000 years and two life sentences. You know, modern science continues to develop, and I imagine it could be that at some point in the future we, we hone in on certain bodily systems and we learn how to prevent some disease and to prolong real life not just keeping people on a machine, but real life? Could it be? Could it be that there will be a vaccine, there will be an injection, there will be something that could be given that would allow you, though you don't want to, to live for 10,000 years? Now, what do you think that they would do with someone like Dudley Wayne Kaiser when the penalty of the ultimate crime is the ultimate penalty? Maybe they would give him that injection to make him live 10,000 years and he would fulfill his sentence. That's the logic. That's the logic of God's wrath. It is extreme crimes against him that bring these extreme punishments. Why does he go so hard on the world? Because the world has committed the ultimate crime of stealing his glory. So that's the first reason. That's the first reason the judgment is coming. The second reason it's so hard, though, is the one that we might not easily see. And it is because of grace. There was no grace prior to the fall. Grace is for sin. There will be no grace in judgment and beyond in the kingdom of heaven. There will be no grace. There will be no crime. There will be no sin for grace to to cover. But all of the days in between have been days of grace. And that's why judgment will come in such incredible fashion. Not only because of glory, but because of grace. Because all the while, the God of glory, in the midst of sin, of people stealing his glory, has deferred judgment until later so that he all during these decades and centuries and eras has been calling out to the world from the very beginning of Genesis in the garden all the way to the very end when he returns. He has been welcoming the world to come to him by grace. Come to me and I will save you. I will be merciful to you. I will show you grace. He has been preaching the gospel from the very beginning, all the way from Genesis, even down through the prophets. He brings prophet after prophet after prophet to declare the righteousness of Yahweh, that people would turn and they would come to him about his future redemptive plan to bring a savior into the world, to enter our world, understand our need, pay the penalty for our sin, die, rise again, and welcome the world into his kingdom if they would place their trust and faith in him. Then after that, Jesus comes and does all of those things. And then after that, disciples continue to preach this message of of gospel goodness and grace all around the world. And then after that, we develop a, a, a way to translate the Bible into all of these languages, and then a printing press so that we can get this message out to the world. And then we have missionaries all around the world. In fact, Our denomination of churches is the the greatest missionary sending organization in the world. So we know about that. Even natural theology, looking at the world, you see that the world is made by a God who is big and bright and beautiful. He is to be worshipped and adored. And even then, 
The world says, no. I don't want your grace. That's why wrath comes on the world. Because of glory and because of grace. You know, one of the objections to this kind of picture, because it's kind of foreign to us, hard to get our hearts around, is, well, man, that just seems so hard. That seems so unfair that these, all this poured out on the world, are, 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 aren't there people there and they just, they really want to love God, they want to know God, but they can't because now this judgment has come and, and if they just had their chance, it's the same kind of objection that we all kind of wrestle with in our hearts about the doctrine of election, of whether that's fair or not. We imagine that somewhere in the world there would be someone that just wants to become a Christian and wants to love God, but they can't because their name's not written in the book. But that's not the truth. There are none of those people. In fact, what is the truth is that along with us prior to Christ, the whole world is full of people who at every turn, at every page of grace, being shouted out to them and announced, say no. And so then you know when wrath comes, it's going to come because he's been holding out grace the whole time. And that puts it in context. That's why God is hard on the world. The Lamb of Grace is also the Lion of Glory. And in the end, he will unleash his judgment as the God of wrath. So what should we do with that? Preach grace. Share the gospel. Make God's grace as irresistible as you possibly can. Stop telling people about low-grade grace, about shoddy mercy. Tell people about big, bright gospel grace, a king who has come into our world to redeem sinners who say no all day long, and then he preaches to them again. Share that gospel over and over and over again. That's the joy of our lives as Christians, is that we have been those people that said no, and yet he reached us. He saved us, and he has made us proclaimers. Not just me, Pastor Kevin, Pastor Isaac, all of us. All of us can be delighting in the gospel by making it known, knowing that an end unleashing is coming. But not now. There won't be grace then, but there's grace now. So we want to make that grace big and bright. That begins for all of us coming to Christ. If you have not come to Christ, we want to help you. We want to pray for you, talk with you, help you understand more about the gospel that we have come to love, help round out your theology with ours. It's all bumpy and confusing, but we want to work together. And so we encourage you to reach out to pastors or community group leaders. If, if you need to make a decision for Christ, you need to come to him by faith. We want today to be the day of your conversion. And for those of us who are in Christ, we have such an incredible calling in this world to preach big, bright gospel grace 
everywhere that we can. And we want the songs that we sing, even the songs that we sing now, to motivate our hearts and to encourage us to do that very thing. Even today, when you go out to lunch, find somebody, waiter, waitress, hostess, whoever, and tell them, tell them about Jesus who is big in mercy and bright grace. Let's stand together and prepare our hearts to sing as we pray. Our Father, this morning we again come to you thankful for your word, thankful for the difficult truth that you lay out clearly for us on, on every page, the truth that you are a righteous God and you are the God who will bring wrath upon the world, but you are, because of your commitment to your glory, now offering grace to the world day after day after day after day. Oh God, we pray for the world. We know from Romans 2 that the world in saying no to you is storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Just as we were until Christ plucked us from the fire. God, we pray that you would give us boldness, give us energy, give us focus so that we can be ambassadors of your grace, big and bright And we pray that you would accompany our words with effectual grace, that your grace would have power, that it would be in fact irresistible as it is, and that you would draw people from all over the world to yourself ahead of this great and terrible day of wrath that is coming. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you for keeping us. Thank you for satisfying us and making us glad. Now we pray that you would use this gospel and make us useful to you in the proclaiming of it and in the enjoying of it, the living in it and the dying in it. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.